Good morning, everyone. This morning's reading comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through to 14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything else beyond these. Of making many books there is no end and much study is a weariness to the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Andrew. Let me add my greetings to Tim's. Uh, it's great to be with you here again this morning, especially to any guests or visitors with us today. I see there's a few around. We're very glad to have you with us uh, and hope you can join us afterwards so we can get to know you a bit better. I uh, also wanted to mention that we were meant to have a presentation from the AFES team today, but unfortunately Michelle is unwell, so please keep her in your prayers. Uh, Michelle looks after the ministry on the campus. Hopefully we'll have them again in a few weeks. <clears throat> Now today we've reached the end of the Old Testament wisdom book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, from my own experience and from talking to many of you, it's been a much needed dose of reality in a life which often tries to deceive us into believing that we can have it all and we can have it now, that we can live forever and that we can always be in control of everything. Now I got a, a lovely email from one of our Grace Community groups this week that said that um, how the, how the time in Ecclesiastes has helped them have great conversations about real-life concerns and real weakness, both personal and in those we love. It's led to deep prayer and sharing. And we really praise God for that. It just reminds us God's Word is effective. It does what it sets out to do. I think for many of us, studying Ecclesiastes has given us greater confidence in God's Word because we find a book here that describes life the way it really is. Ecclesiastes proves that the Bible isn't interested in giving us a sugar-coated beach holiday version of life. The Bible is refreshingly honest about reality and sometimes brutally so. It cuts through the misty soap bubbles of life on planet Earth, whether it's 950 BC or 2022 AD. It reminds us that life under the sun is really just breath, hevel. Now, as we reach these last six verses of the book, we have a change of character. The preacher's final words are in verse 8, where he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's exactly the same place we started in chapter 1. But now in verse 9, we have a different voice. We hear again the, the narrator, who we first met in chapter 1, as he has his closing comments on the preacher's wisdom. 
after 12 chapters of the preacher's research project into wisdom and work and pleasure and wealth and time and relationships and age and even religion and a host of other things to see if he could find meaning and purpose and permanence, the narrator wants to answer one question. What is the bottom line? Well, that's going to be our question too as we look at the end of chapter 12. It'd be great if you could have a Bible open with you so you can follow along with me. Uh, And would you join me as we pray before we get into it? Our God and Father, we thank you so much that your word, the Bible, is useful, that it's clear, that it's understandable, and that it's effective. Father, I pray that you would speak to us all from your word today as it's opened, so that we may know you more and love Jesus more. We pray this in his name. Amen. You'll find on today's service outline uh, four headings that'll help us as we work our way through this passage. (coughs) Excuse me. And this is up to our first heading this morning called The Bottom Line on the Preacher, starting at verse 9. Because no good assessment of someone's message is complete without an assessment of the messenger themselves. The narrator knows that you can't separate content from character. And I think nowhere is this more serious than when the messenger claims to speak God's truth. It's a fact that I find incredibly humbling. So in verse 9 and 10, the narrator critiques the preacher himself. He wants to know that if the preacher, for all his wisdom, for all all he's said, has he got integrity? Is he credible? Can he be trusted? Now, it seems likely that the preacher is King Solomon. And, of course, Bob reminded us last week that King Solomon made some pretty poor life choices and some utterly monumental blunders. But where did he end up? Can you trust what he said? What's the bottom line on the preacher? Well, please look with me at verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So can the preacher be trusted? Well, the clue is there in the first phrase, isn't it? Besides being wise. Because the preacher is not just wise, he's also generous. As someone said, the preacher's concerns are pastoral, not professional. He wasn't just a career wise man trying to get the most likes on his YouTube channel. He used his wisdom not just for his own benefit, but with a a real wise concern for those he was responsible to lead. His concern was that they would live wisely and responsibly too, so he shared his wisdom. Brings to mind Solomon's original request of God in his prayer back in 2 Chronicles chapter 1. He says to God, give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people, for who can govern this people of yours, which is so great? So it's a, it's a return to where Solomon began. It's a picture of a king generously concerned to serve God's people to govern God's people well, with a sense of serious responsibility under God. The preacher's not just wise, he's also been careful. 
These are no 140-character tweets or the unfiltered dreams, visions, and musings of some self-accredited philosopher. He's weighed and studied and arranged many proverbs with great care. He's gone the extra mile to consider their value, to put them to the test himself, to see if they actually work, and then to organize them in the most helpful way for others. More than being wise, the preacher's also gone to the trouble of finding out the best words to use, the best way of presenting what he's got to say to get the message across. He knows that we remember things if they're creatively presented. You just think back to the poem about the realities of time that he wrote in chapter 3, which is so memorable it became a, a, a pop hit 3,000 years later. Well, you think about that, that simple punchy proverb from chapter 9, a living dog is better than a dead lion. And finally, more than just being wise, the preacher has uprightly written words of truth. This points to the moral integrity of what he's done, what he's written. Whether he made good or bad choices in life, ultimately he was wise enough to learn truth from the consequences of those choices. So can the preacher be trusted? Based on what we've read in Ecclesiastes, the narrator's honest assessment here, the bottom line of the preacher is, yes, we can trust what he says. He's got integrity, he's got credibility, and he's got our best interests at heart. Well, as we move into verse 11 and 12, the narrator moves from the preacher's approach to the preacher's words. And though he's got the particular wisdom of this particular preacher in mind, his Comments are really an evaluation of all true wisdom. So please look with me at verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Just to explain, a goad is an ancient farming implement still used in many parts of the world today. It's really a long sharpened stick that you use to um, get stubborn livestock to move along. I guess a modern equivalent is, is an electric cattle prod. And I'm sure all of us have been uncomfortably prodded in some way as we've been reading Ecclesiastes together. And you know, the best wisdom does that. The best wisdom makes us uncomfortable. Best wisdom challenges our laziness and our stubbornness so that we will get moving or change direction in the course of our lives for the better. But that's not all the preacher's wisdom does. The narrator recognizes how good wisdom can also be like nails firmly fixed. We all, we all know what nails do. We embed nails in something when we want to fix it in place, when we want to stabilize it. The preacher's wisdom is good for this too, embedding itself in us to reassure us, to stabilize us, especially when the storms of life threaten to undo us. But then the narrator makes a key statement that the words of the wise, that is the words of real wisdom, whatever their other qualities, are given by one shepherd in verse 11. What does that mean? 
Well, the one shepherd is a reference to God himself, the creator of the world we live in, and the Lord who is concerned for the well-being of his people. God is often called a shepherd in the Bible. You think back to Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. As the creator, he's designed his creation to work in a particular way. And in many ways, real wisdom for life of the kind that we find in the Bible is knowing how to live the best way in the creator's world. Obviously, doing that means following the shepherd. But whereas God's law, for example, says that to honor the seventh day each week and set it apart pleases God, God's wisdom says that we just don't function properly if we try to keep working through seven-day cycles without any breaks. So that's not how God's made the world. I know it's not possible always to have a neat work week, especially if you're a shift worker. But this is wisdom. This is why it's wisdom. Because it's generally true for human beings because of the way God made us. We simply function better with a rest day, one in seven. Uh, Back in 1793, French revolutionaries tried to implement a revolutionary metric uh, calendar, and that included a 10-day work week. It didn't really catch on, mainly because people only got one day off in 10. And Napoleon finally abolished it in 1806 after he took power, but it lasted for 13 years. But in that time, it just proved that we're built for a cycle of one day of rest in seven, not one day in ten. That's wisdom. It's God's wisdom. And so just like all truth is God's truth, in fact, all real wisdom is God's wisdom too. It traces its source back to the creator and designer of the world, the one shepherd. And you know, the narrator wants us to really take this point on board. So with fatherly concern, he warns the reader in verse 12, my son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. <clears throat> wonder, is anyone into exams at the moment? Yep, much study, weariness of the flesh, anyone there? Yep, this verse is for you. Of course, the narrator isn't warning against studying. I think studying is a good thing. And in fact, this is what the preacher is doing. He's studying the world. He's an academic in many ways. But what he is warning us is about the expectations of what we study. The expectations we have of the stuff that we study, not just in school or uni, but in all of life. And I think this is particularly apt in the age, the era in which we live, sometimes called the information age. You know, we have the greatest access and capacity to consume information than has ever been seen in the history of the world. Think about your favorite social media app platform for a moment. I wonder, has anyone actually reached the bottom of their newsfeed ever? There's a prize if you have. Just warning you, it's a book. Um, of course we don't. It's, it's, it's called the infinite scroll for a reason. And it's true, the making of many books or, or tweets or podcasts or posts or stories or videos or articles or blogs, 
There is no end. So what are we meant to do with all of this information? Well, I think there, there are actually two warnings here in verse 12. <coughs> Excuse me. And the first one is the obvious one where he says, beware. And I, I think we all know what beware means, I hope. I think you can only have gotten this far in life if you know what beware means. It's a word we sometimes see on a gate sign, usually near the word dog, or on a road sign close to the words falling rocks. It means to be careful. It means to slow down, be cautious, to be alert to possible danger. And so in saying beware of anything beyond these, the narrator is warning us to be extra careful of anything that claims to be wisdom, but that we can't obviously trace back to the creator and designer of the world in which we live. All wisdom is God's wisdom, but we've still got to be careful to evaluate whether or not it's actually wisdom. We must be alert to the danger, however tempting, of trusting the information we can access instead of the wisdom of the one shepherd to guide us through life. So here's the second warning. It comes from near the end of the verse. What does the endless consumption of content and information do for us? It exhausts us. It wearies our minds, our hearts, our souls, and even our bodies as we waste away behind a screen or behind a desk or in an armchair. And that's a problem because wisdom is meant to move us to action. We saw in verse 11, the wisdom is meant to be like a go that gets us moving. It's hard to move when you're tired. But weariness prevents action. Uh, Tony Reinke, in his book, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You, put it like this. It's a hamster wheel of what will never satisfy our souls. Hear the resonance with Ecclesiastes there? He says, led by our unchecked digital appetites, we manage to transgress both commands that promise to bring focus to our lives. We fail to enjoy God. We fail to love our neighbor. That's what happens when we give ourselves over to the endless consumption of information. By contrast, God's wisdom is enough to go on. So avoid the trap of overanalyzing and overconsuming information as though that can guide us through life or give us meaning and purpose, but actually achieves nothing but anxiety and weariness. This is an important lesson the preacher has learned and presented to us in Ecclesiastes. And so the bottom line on wisdom is that we've got to discern God's wisdom, take it on board, and like the Nike slogan, just do it. <clears throat> Which brings us to point three, the final two verses of this assessment and of the book of Ecclesiastes itself. Look with me at verse 13 and 14. The end of the matter... All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. See, we've reached the end of the book, and there's really nothing more to say. 
it's just a great reminder of how far the preacher has gone in his pursuit of wisdom. He's kind of just, he's hit, he's hit the bottom. There's nowhere, there's, you can't go any further. He's used his near limitless resources to test what could give meaning or purpose or permanence, probably more than anyone before him or anyone after him in human history. And the final takeaway, after all of this, well, fear God and keep his commandments, for that's the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You see, friends, one day the God who made you and me will be the God who judges the world, including you and me. He will judge everything we've ever done, good or bad, public or secret, even the things that we hope no one ever finds out about us. And it's this definitive, total judgment of God which actually gives wisdom its place in God's plan. I think as I read Ecclesiastes, there's actually an undercurrent of hope as the preacher talks about judgment. We, We usually see judgment as a very negative thing. But for the preacher, judgment is where it all comes out in the wash. It's where true wisdom is vindicated. It's where wisdom is proved. But it's worth saying that wisdom by itself will not help us survive God's judgment. We won't be able to give our uh, our understanding of or our agreement with God's wisdom as a defense against our own sin when we're called up to account for our lives before God. But true wisdom drives us towards what will help us. It doesn't get us there, but true wisdom points us in the right direction. True wisdom teaches us that human beings are built to worship God and obey the God who made us. And this is what will matter when we die and face God's judgment. Now, we've got to admit that Ecclesiastes ends quite abruptly and maybe quite bleakly. But notice the clarity and honesty with which the preacher has sketched the realities of life under the sun. There are five things I've picked up. First of all, there's the reality that we live in a world made by a creator and that we too are part of his creation. That's number one. Of course, with creation also comes, sadly, curse, because there's, secondly, the reality of life under the curse of sin, where things are no longer the way that they were originally meant to be. There's a beautiful pattern in Genesis 1 and 2 that was broken in Genesis 3. But thirdly, there's also the reality of a God who still gives generously and graciously, but he also judges impartially. So he's a judge, a God who judges, but a God who gives as well. Fourthly, the preachers sketched the reality of the limits of human life, because there's only so much we can get or do or be, and then we die, and we must answer for it. And finally, fifthly, there's the reality that life can be lived better or worse under the sun, depending on what we do with God's wisdom. And although this is where Ecclesiastes ends, it sets us up perfectly for appreciating what God did in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because for all his wisdom, there is something that we know that the preacher 
never had revealed to him that only Jesus can truly fulfill the mandate of verse 13. Being truly human and in perfect relationship with God. And for that reason, he can be our substitute for all our failed attempts at human responsibility to fear God and keep his commandments. And so as we reach our fourth point, if you have a Bible, it'd be great if you could turn to the New Testament book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9. Give you a moment to find it. And we go there because the whole Bible is actually one story, Old and New Testament. Yes, it's written by 40 plus authors over 1,500 years. It's got one message, one story, with Jesus Christ as the hero. So please do look with me at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 and 28. And as we read, hear how the, the writer of the Hebrews echoes exactly what the preacher in Ecclesiastes is saying, but adds Jesus into the mix. Hebrews 9, 27, he says, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, very Ecclesiastes, you could have had it written in the Old Testament. He says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You see, just like the preacher, the writer to the Hebrews is painfully aware that each of us will one day die and face God's judgment. This is an absolute certainty. He says, it is appointed. Somewhere in God's diary, each of our names are written. Wisdom teaches us this cannot be avoided. But as certain as our own personal death and judgment is, that's how certain is the completion of Jesus' saving work for those whose sins he's dealt with on the cross. You see, true wisdom teaches us that we need a savior. An honest, thoughtful reflection on our own hearts and lives teach us that we just don't cut it when it comes to doing what God requires. We just can't do Ecclesiastes 12, 13 very well. But a similar, honest, thoughtful reflection on Jesus teaches us that he can, he does, he is. And for that reason, he's able to deal with our sin, and we're invited in the Bible to put ourselves in his hands, to entrust ourselves to him. And in fact, that is wisdom. And as we bring this message in the series of sermons to a close, I'd like to zoom in on that last phrase in verse 28, where it says that Jesus will certainly save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Because, you know, Ecclesiastes, as the preacher's research project, it really deals with human eagerness, our wants and our desires to find meaning and purpose and permanence and fulfillment in all sorts of ways, in all sorts of things, from experiences to stuff to reputation to relationships. 
to wisdom itself. But the conclusion is that all we're eager for just leaves us empty-handed, like we're trying to grab hold of the wind, like we're trying to hold our breath in our hands. It just blows away. I saw this beautifully illustrated the other day as I drove out of my street. Uh, turning across me was a big white Chrysler 300. I wonder if you know the car. Uh, it had big shiny rims, a big shiny price tag, and across the top of the windshield, it said, never satisfied. And look, I, I admire the honesty, and I think I know what the person is trying to say, if it's your car, not having a dig. But at the same time, isn't that just such a picture of what the preacher has been trying to tell us? Nothing in life is ever going to truly satisfy us. But by contrast, true wisdom teaches that when we know that our sins have been forgiven by Jesus forever, then the best, the most satisfying thing that we could ever have, ever want, will be seeing Jesus return to take us home to be with him in glory forever. Because the bottom line is, when you're eagerly waiting for Jesus to come and take you home, you're free to enjoy life under God and stop chasing the wind. Are you eagerly waiting for Jesus? Would you join me as we pray? Our Lord and our God, we thank you so much for the things you reveal to us in your word. We thank you that your word is honest with us, that it tells us the things that we often try to ignore or try to uh, gloss over in our lives. But Lord, we pray this morning that your words would find a target in our hearts to direct us towards the satisfaction and joy and purpose, and meaning that the Lord Jesus offers. Please help us to live well under you in Christ, never again to chase the wind. Please make us eager to see him come to take us home, as if that's the best thing we could ever have in life. We pray this in his name and for his glory's sake. Amen. Well, we're going to respond to God's word.